It's time for the title, the crown, and the chance to become the next Miss Teen USA. Let's get to it, Rob. The first runner-up to the state title of Miss Michigan Teen USA is Rebecca Larson of Great Lakes. That means Alexis Lubecki. You are the new Miss Michigan Teen USA 2019. Alexis, congratulations. You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Leonard Vaut. And I'm Yusuf Amanula. And on this episode, we're talking about beauty pageants, constructions and deconstructions of womanhood. So when we were thinking about this episode, we initially wanted to look into beauty and beauty standards and whether these were influenced by the likes of class or power or even colonialism. And when we were researching about the topic, we found that beauty pageants were a way for us to examine how beauty was judged. And from this, we realized that, well, beauty no longer is an abstract concept. In fact, now there's this criteria to judge what it means to be beautiful. But then with these beauty pageants comes this extra dimension of gender, because it's not just about beauty in general, but rather women's beauty and how a country and its people want to portray their concept of the ideal woman. And then going back to what you were saying about whether these things have been influenced by class or by power or by colonialism, in actual fact, the social history of pageants have been marked by these things, especially in America from its very beginnings. Beauty pageants have had this give and take between the groups that they have included and represented and those that they haven't. And so these pageants, both in America and outside of it, have come to reflect the social histories of those countries. And it's not just been about the established pageants, but also about the new defiant ones that have redefined beauty and womanhood on their own terms. going to start off by looking at the history of the first established beauty pageant that was Miss America, which started almost 100 years ago in 1921. And here to talk to us about the origins and legacy of Miss America is Margot Mifflin, who is an English professor at Lehman College, City University of New York, and author of the recently released Looking for Miss America, a pageant's 100-year quest to define womanhood. Thank you so much for being with us on this episode, Margot. For our listeners who might not be familiar with Miss America, could you run us through what the competition is and what place it's had in American society? The Miss America pageant today is fairly different from what it was when it started out almost 100 years ago. Today it's billed as a scholarship competition. So the women are um, they're competing to get a scholarship uh, and, and also competing to get a year as, as Miss America doing sponsorships and making money on, on that tour year that they have. 
And so what they have to do is do a, like a public interview, um, adopt a social issues platform where they advocate for a cause like literacy or battling domestic abuse or um, some, some social issue that, that they can uh, get behind. And sometimes they go on to advocate for that issue professionally in their lives beyond Miss America. So they, there's the, the, the scholarship, there's the interview, there's beauty is still a factor. They have to be pretty. And it's today presented as training women professionally for some kind of career or public life. But it didn't start out that way. It started out as a bathing beauty contest in 1921. And the motivations for that were purely or mostly commercial. The idea was to extend the tourist season um, at the beach. And this is on the New Jersey shore in a resort town called Atlantic City. So that after Labor Day in September, which marks you know the end of our, our summer break from school, the idea was to have an attraction after that date and draw people to the hotels and the um, businesses in Atlantic City after that date. So initially it was a festival and the, the first year in 1920, there was a beauty pageant as just a piece of that festival. But, but then in 1921, the actual pageant was launched and that was motivated psychologically or socially, I guess, for reasons beyond the commercial motivations. Number one, women had just won the vote here in 1920, or at least white women did. Uh, and I say that because um, black women were prevented from voting in so many ways after the, the 19th Amendment was passed. And so the sort of radical nature of that decision put women in a position of power and gave them a kind of agency in public life that a beauty pageant worked against. So it seemed to express a kind of anxiety about the fact that women suddenly had this power and the beauty pageant rewarded women who were pretty and compliant and friendly and um, wholesome were the sort of characteristics of uh, the winners. And so that was number one. It was a response to winning, women winning the vote. But it was also a response to immigration because around the turn of the century, 20 million immigrants landed on our shores and there was a sort of a concern about American identity and the purity of American identity and specifically white identity. And that was kind of entangled with the Great Migration in which so many African-Americans moved north from the south in the early part of the century, started in the early part of the century. So that was number two, immigration. And then um, the third thing, which I guess relates to immigration, was the growing eugenics movement. And that too was a, uh, you know, an expression of anxiety about American identity, American purity. Um, one of the, the biggest ironies of crowning Miss America and naming her the ultimate American woman is the symbolism of the crown because really there's nothing less American than a crown. Our whole, our whole country was founded on the defiance of this, the power of a crown. And so that continues today. Like the women still, they are crowned with a crown. The crown has gone through these 
um, various design evolutions through the decades, but they're still being crowned. So that's a kind of interesting irony, but class is another big element of this. And uh, it's basically that in, in my research, one of the most interesting unexplored areas of this was class in the sense that the pageant as it evolved, uh, it, it started as purely a bathing beauty contest. Then in the 1930s, a woman became the director and she tried to kind of upclass it and make it more than a beauty contest. She added talent so the women wouldn't just be standing around in, in swimsuits. And in, the, in 1945, she added a scholarship to give it some value for them that would last beyond the pageant itself. And so in her attempt to upclass it, she, she made it sort of like a debutante ball. There's a lot of parallels between the rituals of Miss America and a debutante ball in the sense that the women are on display, they're walking in formation, they're wearing gowns, they're carrying flowers, they're being evaluated as marriageable young women. And so that was a strange class factor, but it was also one of the most interesting parts of it in my research, because where traditional debutante ball prevents people who aren't of the upper classes from participating in upper class events, this tried to hike people up a class and often succeeded because often it was lower or lower middle-class women who wanted an opportunity or who wanted to get money to get somewhere in life and who didn't have professional opportunities like women do now. So they used their beauty transactionally to get that power, to get that economic power. And so uh, even today, I think that's somewhat true that some of the women who compete who are looking for these scholarships are doing so because they don't have money to pay for college and the and the scholarships are helping them so that's that's the sort of four piece history of it and it's evolved a lot the biggest change that has happened in recent years is the removal of the swimsuit and it has sort of propelled it into or, or removed what's considered to be the most sexist aspect of it. But even without the swimsuit, we're still putting women on parade and on some level evaluating them for their appearance. And so what does Miss America tell us about representations of womanhood in America? And how have people received its attempts to define it? Historically, in this country, it was a huge popular success uh, and the women who won became celebrities and many of them like in the mid 20th century had name recognition some of them had careers in entertainment mostly um, singing and acting and were very successful but there was always opposition to it so it, it represented some kind of wholesome american feminine identity and it was always very gender binary. It was always about traditional femininity. And in my opinion, it continues to be very much so. You don't see, it's not reflecting the changes we see in society now, where we're seeing gender on a continuum and gender presentation that's variable. The, the women who compete look very traditionally feminine and behave in a very traditionally feminine way. And so going back to how it represented America or how people objected to its representation of America, right from the start, uh, religious groups objected to it because they didn't like the idea of women parading around in swimsuits in public. 
which which was the one kind of subversive piece of it. The swimsuit at that time was a sign of progress for women because previously like around the turn of the century, they had to cover themselves in these heavy wool dresses to swim, to conceal their bodies. And only when this professional Olympic swimmer, Annette Kellerman, designed a more form-fitting swimsuit, did the swimsuit as we know it get born. And so the women competing in Miss America were wearing something that was considered fairly progressive for women. But the, the people who organized the contest were smart enough to see, oh, women are um, permitted to wear this thing now. And we can kind of cash in on this because people want to see women's bodies in this thing. So from the start, religious groups objected, claiming that it was you know, unseemly for young women to be doing this. And then in the 40s, it evolved to where this woman who became the most influential executive director, her name is Lenore, was Lenora Slaughter. She also added this layer of patriotism after the Second World War, where uh, she arranged it so that the women were going out raising war bonds and that the winners were perceived as very patriotic, actively patriotic forces, not just symbols of American patriotism. And so she sort of redeemed it at that time. And then it hit its golden era in the 50s and 60s, where it, when it was on TV, I guess it was 54 or 55, when um, it started to be broadcast on TV. And that was a very glamorous period where there's this big, you know, there were these big extravaganza uh, type presentations and um, gowns and glamour. But then the point at which it's never really recovered from was the point when in 1968, when the second wave feminism was getting going and feminists protested the pageant on the boardwalk outside the hall where the pageant was held for all the, the obvious reasons that it was sexist, that women were more than just beautiful creatures to be gaped at in swimsuits. And from there, the Miss America pageant started to slip behind women's progress. It was, since then, it's all, Miss America has always been in dialogue with feminism, but never in step with it. So it's always sort of trying to catch up. Like when it got rid of the swimsuit, that was great, but it was about a half a century too late from when people started objecting to the swimsuit. So it has evolved in its, in its own ways, adding the scholarship, adding the social issues platform. But in terms of the presentation of the women, it hasn't kept pace. And Margaret, could you tell us about the pageant's relationship with race throughout history and how it's tried to evolve? Yeah, so it has always been, had a really problematic relationship with race. Um, in the 40s, a rule was instituted, the notorious rule number seven, that stipulated that the contestants had to be in good health and of the white race. So that had been sort of informally um, in play from the start, although uh, one of the early winners was part Cherokee, part Native American, but she didn't identify as such until much later, so nobody knew that. And then there was a, um, a, an Asian contestant and a Latina contestant who, who got in the competition but didn't win. And so even though there were a few women of color who competed, 
black women were completely excluded. And that director I mentioned, Lenora Slaughter, uh, explained at one point when she was challenged on this that she felt that the pageant simply, or she said that the pageant simply wasn't capable of judging black beauty fairly. So that was a very strange comment in the sense that saying that is tantamount to saying we don't see black beauty, so we can't include it as a part of this competition. So that went on, and that was another target of protest at the 1968 feminist protest. They, they protested its, its sexism, but they also protested its racism. And that very night that the feminist protest was happening in 1968, another pageant was being launched, Miss Black America, uh, partly to celebrate Black beauty, but partly because Miss America was resistant to including Black women in any more um, concerted way into re recruiting them into Miss America. Interestingly, Oprah Winfrey was a um, Miss Black America contestant in, I think it was 1971, she was Miss Black Tennessee. So the first state winner competed in 1970, but the first Miss America wasn't crowned until 1983. And that was Vanessa Williams. She was, uh, I would say she's the most famous and the most successful and also the, the best loved Miss America, um, partly because she was just incredibly talented. She went on to have a really successful singing and acting career and has been nominated for um, a whole bunch of awards. Um, but also because she was the one who was dethroned. She, um, I guess maybe nine months into her year as Miss America, naked pictures that somebody had taken to, of her were sold to Penthouse Magazine and published. And the Miss America organization told her, you have to step down because this just reflects so badly on us. And she did, but people questioned the logic of that when the the Miss America organization was asking women to walk around in heels and swimsuits on a stage and then telling Vanessa Williams, your behavior is inappropriate for our organization because of these naked pictures. Getting back to the subject of race, she was important as in, you know, both as a celebrity who was successful and who in some ways did not need Miss America, but also as a role model because all the years that Miss America was excluding black women, people, especially, you know, teens and young women who were watching this were seeing um, America's most beautiful woman trotted out every year and never a black woman. So when Miss, when uh, Vanessa Williams was crowned, it was really important to a lot of women who felt validated and felt seen essentially. And so that was a, a turning point in the competition, and they've since crowned many more Black women as Miss America. Um, but uh, th that was historic, even for people who didn't really care about Miss America or pay attention to Miss America as a point of Black pride. And a very important point on race, too. There has never been a Miss America of Hispanic descent, which is right there I have to conclude that Miss America does not represent America because the Latinx population uh, accounts for almost 20% of our country. And so for 100 years to never have had a Miss America of Hispanic heritage is quite a, quite a remarkable oversight or 
negligence, I guess. I'm qualifying that a little bit because there was a Miss America who was born in Paraguay and um, a white woman whose father was a missionary. So she's technically a Latina, but she's not, uh, she has no Hispanic, Hispanic heritage. She had, the family had gone there from the state of Utah. And have there been any examples of participants that have rebelled against what Miss America stands for? Whenever you have an institution that's insisting on this kind of conformity, you're going to get people who push back. So some of the rebels are the most interesting parts of the story. They're the woman in 1937, Betty Cooper, who kind of got pushed into it by her friend, didn't really want to compete. Then she kept winning and winning, and then she was crowned Miss America. And then the night she won, she took off with her pageant-appointed chauffeur and left and just quit. And she's the only Miss America who ever went AWOL. And later she said, I just wanted to finish high school. I didn't want to have to go out on the vaudeville circuit at age 17 and, uh, you know, be a performer. And, you know, she was invested in her education and her friends and, and just said no. Um, likewise, there was the probably most influential on Miss America contestant who refused to wear a swimsuit in 1951, Yolan Bees, and said, I'm an opera singer, not a pinup. And that actually caused this, one of the sponsors, Catalina Swimwear, to withdraw their sponsorship and start Miss USA, which is the pageant that Donald Trump later bought. So she changed the landscape of pageants. Or in 1970, there was this really, um, there was a remarkable woman who was told when she was competing as Miss Montana that she had to suppress her anti-Vietnam War views. And she quit. She said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to continue this title if you're going to make me do that. And she just stepped down and appeared in Life magazine, you know, mainstream general interest magazine of the period in her full pageant regalia with her fist raised. That <laughs> was great. So there have been rebels and there have been women who have uh, found their professional way through that stepping stone of Miss America, either through getting the, the media training that it offers or um, simply by getting, getting the money that allowed them to pay for whatever training or education they wanted to. There's been a, there's been a doctor, you know, there was a, a Miss America who became a doctor, um, another who became a lawyer, some state winners, the state winners feed into the national competition, who've also been able to establish uh, really good professional careers as a result of the scholarships they got. And I must say one last thing, there was a woman speaking of rebels in the 1980s, there was a revived protest against Miss America in California. And for years, women and men went out in the streets and protested the Miss California pageant, including one woman who dressed in something like 30 pounds of bologna, like of lunch meat. She wore a lunch meat dress and a sausage necklace and a sausage crown in protest of Miss America. And another woman who is now, speaking of CUNY, she is the president of Brooklyn College, which is one of the CUNY colleges. Uh, her name is Michelle Anderson. She competed in Miss California. I think this was 1986. She 
did all the dieting and tanning and pretending to be a fundamentalist Christian to get on the stage. And in the final moments before the winner was crowned, um, she unfurled from her cleavage a little banner that said pageants hurt all women. And then she went on to become a lawyer who defended uh, rape victims. And now she's president of Brooklyn College. So the, it has produced some really interesting women, either in support of the pageant or against it. at the history and the origins of beauty pageants in America, we're turning to see how these competitions have been adapted in countries across the world. And specifically, we're looking at the case of Nigeria with Kemi Balligan, Assistant Professor of Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies, as well as Sociology at the University of Oregon, and also the author behind the recently released book, Beauty Diplomacy, Embodying an Emerging Nation. Thank you, Kemi, for being part of this episode. Could you tell us about what the beauty pageant scene is like in Nigeria and what led you to research it? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think the pageant industry in Nigeria is pretty, it's pretty interesting. And just to give kind of an anecdote that I think illustrates some of that in my book, I include a quote from Basket Mouth, who's a Nigerian comedian. And he was kind of making fun of just the amount of pageants in Nigeria and so he says um, in the social media post, like, you know, at, at some point we're going to see Miss Pretty Leg and this long neck. Right. And so he was making a joke, but it's not too far off uh, in terms of just how booming the uh, pageant scene is in Nigeria, that there's so many different types of pageants and they're attached to so many different things, so many different activities, products, uh, different industries that it's used to promote. And so in Nigeria, I found that they, uh, patents were not only used to promote kind of more expected things like cosmetics, but also used to promote particular cultural values or cultural understandings, things like valuing peace or uh, Nigerian heritage. Uh, and also used to promote particular industries like uh, the tourism industry, telecommunications, etc. So um, that was kind of my initial entry point into studying pageants in Nigeria and that I really noticed that they were very much embedded into the urban uh, social landscape of many Nigerian societies and Nigerian cities. And so I wanted to kind of, I, I was interested in why they were becoming so commonplace and kind of mushrooming everywhere. And uh, I found out that they were these really interesting and complex sites for thinking about representation in terms of uh, kind of this intersection between embodiment, women's bodies, and kind of the idealized forms that they're expected to take within pageants. And then also how that intersects uh, with questions around gender and power and uh, community, uh, different from the kind of the local level to the nation, which is which I was ultimately interested in questions around uh, national identity and, and nationalism. So that was kind of my, my entry point into figuring out that there were just so many there. And I was interested in why they were becoming so, so popular in terms of the kind of the sheer number of them in Nigeria. And so, Kemi, what have been Nigeria's challenges in building a national identity after independence? And how have beauty pageants embodied these challenges? 
Yeah. So Nigeria as a nation is kind of is an artifact of its colonial history, like as a former British uh, colony, where uh, as a result of colonialism, Nigeria is comprised of groups, various ethnic groups uh, that were brought together because of colonialism that might not have otherwise seen themselves as like a nation or a group of a unified group of people. And so one of the main struggles that's tied to Nigeria's national identity is forging some sense of national unity, kind of given the uh, incredible diversity within Nigeria. So in Nigeria, there are over 250 different ethnic groups. Uh, There are also um, religious differences. So it's about evenly split between Muslims and Christians. There are also just a lot of regional and geopolitical issues within the country. And kind of navigating a lot of those um, differences is key to kind of answering those questions about, you know, what brings us together, kind of given our um, colonial history. And so like pageants, pageants are used as kind of this cultural symbol of wanting to forge that sense of national identity. And so kind of to think of one parallel to that, oftentimes if you're in Nigeria, people will say, you know, the only time that we feel a sense of national identity or we feel a sense of togetherness or that we're unified is when we're watching like soccer or football. And so um, pageants are kind of a, a parallel to that, um, but they're centering kind of femininity and nationhood, uh, but making similar types of arguments about uh, representation and unity. And so the promises of beauty pageants in Nigeria is that they're oftentimes touted as um, places where Nigeria's cultural heritage is valued um, and many national pageants in Nigeria, they have a segment which, called it, which is called a traditional segment where all the contestants are expected to wear clothing, uh, have accessories, etc., that's tied to particular ethnic groups in Nigeria. And oftentimes this, uh, this was heralded as an example of, you know, this is a way of us, of us valuing our culture. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think pageants are really interesting because it also brings to light a lot of the fault lines within Nigeria. So in Nigeria, it's not as if everyone in, in the country uh, celebrates pageants or, or for them. Um, I found that, you know, people that were, were, you know, in opposition to them oftentimes brought up issues of religion, of culture, of class as being reasons why they weren't um, they weren't supportive of pageants. Right. And so uh, that's part of the reason why I'm, again, interested in these events, because they not only speak to uh, arenas in which, um, you know, kind of the promises of what brings Nigeria together and these promises around kind of unity within the context of diversity, but then again, also speaks to a lot of the divisions within the country and how is it that those um, tensions are grappled with and you can see them kind of revealed within, um, within the Nigerian pageant industry. So as you show in your book, beauty pageants have held an important place in Nigeria's efforts to rebrand itself on the international stage. So could you tell us how this came to be? Yeah, so I think kind of more broadly on a macro level, Um, One of the things that I think is important to understand in terms of the context of Nigeria is that one of the primary tensions within the country is kind of the context of a lot of the promises around Nigeria as a country in terms of it's often held as an example of uh, immense uh, potential in terms of its economy. It's the largest economy in Africa. Um, It has the largest population in Africa. So it has all of these kind of natural resources as well as human resources in terms of just the the population size. And so in Nigeria, it's often been held up as as this example of a country that should be kind of on the rise uh, in terms of its political economy and a very important country um, kind of in the region and in the globe. But that kind of more um, 
optimistic vision of the country is often, you know, juxtaposed uh, right alongside many of the problems within the country. So oftentimes stories of uh, conflict and chaos and corruption are often part of um, the stories that we hear, you know, globally outside of the, outside of Nigeria. Even thinking about right now, the fact that the NSARS movement, um, thinking about questions of state-sanctioned violence and um, recognizing that those are you know, deep-seated problems within the Nigerian context, recognizing that these are part of the stories of kind of the image problem that Nigeria has. And so if I were to kind of pinpoint um, particular institutional actors that were kind of part of wanting to be involved in kind of rectifying or, or, or shifting the narratives around Nigeria. I think part of that story is tied to a particular group, uh, media group, the Silverbird Group, who started one of these pageants. And that's um, that company is known for kind of the entertainment world. It's, it's known for throwing live shows, having these events, and kind of one of the ways in which it built its name up was through these pageants. And I think there's something about um, entertainment and leisure and the work that they do in terms of representation and recognizing the, the power behind them in terms of doing that kind of symbolic work of, you know, presenting like the most positive aspects of the country. And so that particular kind of company, I think, uh, was able to kind of leverage that larger understanding of that, you know, these are leisure entertainment events that could, that especially position like beautiful women, which there is a certain kind of currency and value attached to having beautiful women that are also seen as smart, as uh, respectable, et cetera, um, and, and leveraging that in, in terms of um, investing in that in terms of doing not only the symbolic work, but also having uh, an expectation that that has material outcomes in terms of promoting business, promoting uh, tourism, et cetera. Uh, so that's kind of the, the story that I would say in terms of Nigeria. And how have beauty pageants reflected and reproduced gender power dynamics in Nigeria? So I think uh, the story about gender and power um, is on the one hand, pageants are very much presented in Nigeria as open to all and kind of leveling the playing field. And so especially in terms of targeting uh, young women and the kind of narrative around pageants. And I, I don't think it's entirely unique to Nigeria, but oftentimes people will bring up the context of Nigeria and that it's oftentimes hard to get like a job, secure a job or kind of propel your career if you're not connected and and, and plugged into specific social circles. So um, pageants in Nigeria are often presented as these platforms that are stepping stones for um, young women to propel their careers and to have uh, post-pageant careers in a number of fields. And so in terms of that, contestants would often tell me that, you know, this, me um, participating in these pageants is a way for me to finally have a voice in Nigeria. And so it's tied uh, to gender and understandings of like patriarchy and male domination, but it's also tied to issues of class inequality and tied to issues of age. So um, gender is also needs to be understood in the context of age and class as well, and how these young women are seeing these events as sites for promoting their careers and um, being tied to kind of these social networks that will ultimately um, help them economically is kind of their pro- the, the promise of the pageants. Um, but on the flip side, I think it's also important to 
so even though contestants were telling me like, you know, I have a voice, I have this office, I have this title, and I can go up to any politician and they have to listen to me because I have this kind of legitimacy uh, tied to, to being part of the pageant world. Uh, I think it's also important to think about the inequalities that are embedded in pageants because it's not as if everyone has access to them. Uh, even to audition for pageants, you have to, in Nigeria, you have to, uh, at the time when I was doing the research, it cost about $30 to audition. So it's not as if everyone has access to that amount of money to even be able to audition. Uh, so I think even though, um, as I said, they're presented as these, as these kind of equalizers, there's still um, inequalities embedded within, within the pageant world. And so, Kemi, in your book, you also explained how Western feminist critiques of beauty pageants didn't capture how pageants in Nigeria ought to be understood. Could you share with us your reflections on this? Yeah, so I think part of my critique of the Western, like Western feminist critique of pageants in particular, is tied to, I think, a framing around power that tends to think about power as being either an either or proposition. So in the context of beauty pageants, it's either that well, are these examples of empowering women or examples of exploiting women? And I think part of my critique of that is that it's, it's, it's both. Women are both being empowered and exploited. And that's kind of um, wanting to nuance and complicate that, those questions and that argument. And that, that issue is kind of my own uh, reflections on it. And then also thinking about how um, I think part of that Western feminist critique emerges out of like the social movements in which like Western feminism uh, came out of. So uh, in the context of the U.S., what's termed like second wave feminism, kind of the public consciousness around second wave feminism emerged out of a specific protest in 1968, where they were protesting against the Miss America pageant as, you know, this is an example of objectifying women. It's an example of um, only valuing women for their bodies. And so I think that particular critique and that particular narrative that's tied to like the history of, you know, the, the American social movements and also in the U.K. as well. Um, about protesting against beauty pageants is kind of really tied to this feminist framing around beauty and power. Um, I think um, we need to recognize that it comes out of specific historical circumstances. And also, um, I'm really invested in kind of pushing the narratives around power and, and just nuancing them. And so I take at face value, uh, even though I, I, I want to be critical of it, when pageant contestants say, you know, I felt some semblance of power and I was, I was conscious of the fact that, yes, there are ways in which I was being used or manipulated, um, but I still felt um, empowered in some way, ways because people had to listen to me. I take that seriously in terms of um, how we might think about power in more complex ways. So, um, yeah, and I think one... Um, one aspect that I want to delve into more is thinking about like the interfacing between kind of Nigerian feminists and the ways in which they have or haven't taken up um, protesting or organizing or resisting against beauty passions because the context is much is much different in Nigeria and that's uh, an arena I want to explore more. So far, we've been looking at beauty and womanhood in the context of a nation. And of course, there are different representations of these within the same country. And we've looked at that so far with Nigeria. But there are also different pageants emerging in America, one of them being Miss Muslima. 
And so here to talk to us about the pageant and her experience as a participant in the competition is Zehra Abukar, winner of Miss Muslima 2020. Thank you so much for being with us, Zehra. And a big congratulations on winning this year's Miss Muslima. Could you tell us a bit about what the Miss Muslima pageant is and about your personal journey as a participant and now winner of the competition? Muslima USA is a beauty pageant for Muslim women in America. They started in, in 2017. This was the fourth year, fourth annual. And um, it's for Muslim women to showcase their beauty without uh, them being naked or them showing all of their skin. Let me find out about the competition. Actually, my friends did. And uh, it was it was a big decision for me to do because I more of like, I like to do community work. I am behind the scenes than up front. And um, so my friends were like, oh my gosh, you have to do it, you have to do it. It, it. it took me a while to decide to do it. I'm like, hey, yeah, I should try it. But it was, it was beautiful. I loved it. I um, I live in a place, I used to live in a place where I don't see that many Muslim people. And going through this journey, I learned a lot of sisters, the sisterhoods beyond beautiful. And to, like, I, I said this from like day one, I was like, I'm like, regardless, a winner because I went new sisters and a new experience, new people that I can talk to that are going through the same thing I'm going through in America. And how do you think Miss Muslima is deconstructing Miss America's idea of an ideal woman? Mrs. America has been happening for decades. Muslima is just starting. It's a new project. It's a new thing we're doing and we cannot compare. There's no way we can compare. And also... Uh, beauty is not just the outside beauty. People can be beautiful inside. Um, their point of view of beauty is like, you know, how tall, how skinny, how uh, sexy you look when the Muslim woman can be all of that, but be covered. It's just not the face, you know, face change. It's what you do, it's like how good you are within your community. What's, what do you want to do? How do you want to help? So I think we cannot compare. And Zahra, what is it about a pageant that makes it a unique platform to empower Muslim women? I, I, I used to live up north in my state of Maine, and it's mainly white population. And I used to get this question a lot where people would ask, do you take shower with your hijab? They were like, uh, you know what? My go-to answer is like, uh, do you take shower with your shirt? If you take off your shirt, I take off my hijab, you know? Like, we can have a better conversation than do I take shower with my hijab, you know? But when I talk to the girls. The girl from California had the same experience. The girl from Michigan had the same questions. The girl from Idaho had the same questions. It's repeatedly, we've been asked the same questions. So we live, we're in a different bodies, different states, but face the same thing. Often society looks at Muslim women as the woman that should stay home, raise kids. It's a beautiful thing to do. Every woman dreams to do that, but some of us don't fit the box. And these opportunities for those who don't feel like they fill in the box, these opportunities for those who want to make a change, those opportunities for those who wanted to show that, hey, Muslim women can do this. Um, we're totally different what the uh, media is showing towards Muslim people, where all people think we're all terrorists and we're like always screaming and we're like bad people. We're completely the opposite. We're a religion that, um, you know, we always tell, we like, as Muslims, we always, we're trying to be better. And people need to see that, that we're always trying to be good people, good in, like, 
you know, good within the people you live in, like the society or the community, you're always trying to uplift. We have, we have sisters from Jamaica, uh, Russia, uh, Iraq, you know, Suma me being Somalian, we, we had it all over. We were showcasing that Muslims are not just one particular group. And the Western media needs to see that, that we're people who are always every day trying part of the society, you know, part of the economy. We're like business owners, teachers, but they don't show all of that. They show the Muslim guy screaming, saying, Allahu Akbar, and it's jihad. And paraphrasing the question that was asked to you as part of the competition, as the newly crowned Miss Muslim at USA, how will you use the title to change misconceptions about Muslim women around the world? I use uh, my title is to uh, be out there. I am I'm a community leader. I, I help my community. I feel like before you help any other community, before you show anyone else how good you are, you have to show within your community. You have to uplift within your community. And now that I win this title, it helps my leadership. I, I can say to our young youth growing up, say, hey, I did it. You can be whatever you want to be within your hijab. Regardless of you wear hijab or not wear hijab, you can do it. If an immigrant, black Muslim woman did it, you can do it. Thank you so much to Margot and Kemi for providing us this cross-section of beauty pageants from their origins to their evolution within and across countries. And thank you to Zerha for providing her insight as a participant in a beauty pageant, especially one that challenges the status quo. From all of these discussions, we're able to map out the history of beauty pageants and also the functions that these pageants have played in the societies that they represent. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we can improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.